0: Faith Hedgepeth was a kind, intelligent, and beautiful young woman who was just 19 years old when she was found brutally murdered in the Chapel Hill apartment that she shared with her best friend. Beside her body lay a paper bag that had scribbled on it the words, I'm not stupid, bitch jealous. Nine years later, and despite a mysterious voicemail and DNA evidence from the crime scene, We still have not found justice for faith. You're listening to Crime on My Mind, and this is the story of Faith Hedgepath. We're going to be talking about today is probably the one that I have ruminated over the most since I first learned about it. And once you hear about this case and about Faith's life, you will understand why. It is an incredibly compelling and fascinating story. There are so many different layers to it, so many different characters and people who could have been involved. You could probably make a movie out of this story, At the same time, though, Faith was a real person. She was a real human being with parents, siblings, and friends who loved and cared for her, and still, to this day, are searching for justice for her. So I want to keep that in mind as we delve into this case. We are going to be talking about some pretty sensitive topics here, so just want to put that disclaimer out there. Faith was killed in a very brutal way, and there are some sensitive things surrounding her case that we will be discussing, so listener discretion is advised. But this is a case that has remained unsolved for almost nine years now, and I think it is completely solvable. So let's get into it. Faith Hedgepath was a 19-year-old student at UNC Chapel Hill. She was born in Warren County, North Carolina, and was a member of the Haliwa Saponi Native American tribe. Faith was very proud of her Native American heritage. Her parents divorced shortly after she was born, and she was raised by her mother and older sister in North Carolina. Faith was the youngest of four children, and part of the reason why her parents divorced was because her father struggled with drug addiction. Because of this, Faith's mother named her Faith because that was what she believed she needed at that time. Faith's father has said that Faith's birth was like a bright light in the middle of his struggle with drug addiction that helped him find the strength to recover, and Faith would continue to be a light in the lives of everyone who knew her. Faith was an extremely kind and friendly person. She had a huge heart. She was set to be the life of every party. She was very popular and well-liked. She was also very intelligent. She did really well throughout high school and was even awarded the Gates Millennium Scholarship to attend UNC Chapel Hill, which is a very prestigious school. She was set to be the first person in her family to graduate from college. Her dad had actually attended UNC Chapel Hill himself, but had dropped out. Faith loved kids and wanted to become a pediatrician. In her freshman year at UNC, Faith met a girl named Karina, and they quickly became very close friends. They were described as sisters, and for a time, Faith lived with Karina and another student. Faith also came to college with a high school boyfriend named Alex, but as with many high school relationships, Once they got to college, their relationship faded out. Faith would still see him when she went back to her hometown, but during her orientation at UNC, she met a guy named Ty. Ty was also a student at UNC, and soon after meeting, they began an on and off again relationship. Ty apparently knew about Alex, the high school boyfriend. And that was the reason why his relationship with Faith never progressed into something more serious. However, Ty does say that he was in love with Faith and he believes that she felt the same about him. They continue to see each other throughout the two years that Faith was at UNC. Now, for reasons that I wasn't able to find, Faith decided to take the spring semester of 2012 off from school. Around this same time, Karina moved into an off-campus apartment with her boyfriend, a guy named Eric. However, Karina and Eric had a very rocky relationship that was allegedly plagued with domestic violence, and eventually that summer, Karina broke up with Eric and kicked him out of the apartment. At that point, Faith decided to live temporarily with Karina in her off-campus one-bedroom apartment. This was said to be a temporary living arrangement until Faith's financial aid kicked in for the fall semester and she was able to get a place of her own. By this time, Eric and Karina were broken up, but Eric was not very happy about this at all. In fact, there were two instances in early July of 2012 where Eric attempted to break into the apartment. The first time, Eric allegedly broke down the front door, broke the bathroom and closet door as well, and also pushed Karina down on the floor. After this, Karina changed the locks, but this didn't stop Eric from trying to break into the apartment once again. This time, a police report was filed, and it was noted that Karina had visible marks on her body, allegedly from Eric. Karina also filed an order of protection against Eric, which reportedly he was very furious about and resented Faith for convincing Karina to do so. He reportedly viewed Faith as a barrier to his relationship with Karina, And Faith would also later tell a friend that Eric hated her and wanted to kill her. Our story begins on Thursday, September 6, 2012, the day before Faith was murdered. Faith's night began at around 5.45 p.m. when she attended a rush meeting for Alpha Pi Omega, a historically Native American sorority that she hoped to join. At 6.44 p.m., Faith received a text from Ty asking if she still wanted to hang out that day. So remember, Ty is Faith's on-and-off-again boyfriend, and they had been together the weekend prior. Faith, however, did not respond to this text at that time. Faith left the sorority event at around 7.15 and then went to the Davis Library to study with Karina. She also texted her father between 8.30 to 9.00 p.m., telling him about the rush event and how she hoped to join the sorority. This next part is unconfirmed, but there have been reports that Faith left the library sometime during her study session with Karina to go meet an unnamed male individual. Police have never released information about who this guy is or why Faith went to meet him that day. By 11.30 p.m., however, Faith had returned to the library to pick up Karina, and they both returned to their apartment by around midnight. At 12.30 a.m., they left again, this time heading to The Thrill, which was a nightclub in downtown Chapel Hill that was often frequented by college students. Now, I'm not sure if this nightclub allowed people under the age of 21 or if they were having an under-21 night that night, which a lot of clubs in college towns do in order to attract students. I've heard conflicting reports about which one of these it was, but either way, Karina and Faith went to the thrill that night, and surveillance video shows them arriving at around 12.40 a.m. together. After about an hour and a half Karina allegedly was not feeling well. She said that her stomach was hurting, and so she and Faith decided to leave the club. And there is surveillance footage that shows both girls leaving the club at 2.06 AM. In this video, Karina exits the club first walking alongside an unknown man. It appears that she is having some sort of a conversation with this man. Her hands are kind of flinging around as if she's having a heated or intense conversation, but obviously there is no audio from this footage, so we can't know for sure what this conversation entailed. Faith is then seen walking out of the club about 20 seconds after Karina, and she is also walking alongside a man with her arm on his shoulder. Now, although Faith and Karina did walk out with these men, it has been confirmed that they were alone when they got into their car and headed back home. This was the last known visual sighting of Faith by anyone other than Karina. Around 2 30 a.m., both Faith and Karina had gotten back to their apartment. Their downstairs neighbor was awake at this time, watching TV, and she would later report that around 2.40 a.m., so shortly after the girls arrived home, she heard what she describes as three loud thumping noises coming from their apartment. She says that this was louder than the typical sounds she heard from their apartment on a daily basis, and it sounded like someone was moving furniture around. At 3.30am, so almost an hour after the downstairs neighbor heard those noises, Faith's Facebook account was accessed. We don't have any information on what exactly was done on Faith's Facebook account. All we know is that someone, maybe it was Faith, maybe it wasn't, accessed her account at that time. At 3.40 a.m., a a text was sent from Faith's phone to a guy named Brandon. Brandon was an ex-boyfriend of Karina he was also in Faith and Karina's social circle. Apparently, Brandon had also been at the thrill earlier that night, and Karina and Faith had seen him there. The text from Faith to Brandon said this, quote, hey B, can you come over please? Rosario needs you more, aha, uh-huh. you know. Please let her know you care, end quote. Three minutes after that, another text was sent from Faith to Brandon that just said, quote, And this is believed to have been a correction for AHA. So she had actually meant to say, Rosario needs you more than you know. Rosario is Karina's last name, so she was referring to Karina in this text. Brandon did not respond until the next day at 4.16 p.m. when he sent a text saying, quote, Who is this? End quote. At 3.44 a.m., so just a minute after Faith had texted Brandon, Karina's phone makes a phone call to Brandon's phone. Karina then calls him three more times at 3.52 a.m., 3.55 a.m., and 4.14 a.m. However, Brandon does not pick up any of these calls. At 3.52am, so while Karina's phone is trying to contact Brandon, Faith sends a text message from her phone to Ty. Remember, Ty is her on and off again boyfriend, and he had texted her earlier that night asking if she wanted to hang out, and Faith had never responded. So at 3.52am, Faith texts Ty a very lengthy message that says, quote, I know you're probably sleeping, but I just wanted to let you know that I love you. Not a day goes by that you don't cross my mind. I know it will be like this for the rest of my life because of what we've been through. Besides that, I still feel the same and love you the same. Sorry for being in my feelings, but hey, without feelings, we wouldn't have life. Sometimes I feel like you are my life. End quote. This was the last known activity on Faith's phone. So when Brandon didn't respond to Karina's calls, she ended up calling a guy named Jordan. And at 4.25am, Jordan came to pick Karina up and Karina left the apartment to go to his place. According to Karina, Faith was fast asleep at this point and Karina says that she left the apartment door unlocked when she left. Karina allegedly spent the night with Jordan, and at around 10.30am the next morning, she tried to call Faith a few times in order to try and get a ride back home. This was a Friday, so both of them had class that day. When Faith wouldn't pick up the phone, Karina decided to call a friend named Marisol. Marisol was another good friend of both Faith and Karina's. She was a little bit older than the both of them and was described as the big sister of the group. Karina told Marisol that Faith wasn't answering the phone and asked Marisol to try to get in touch with her. Marisol replied, it's okay, I'll just come get you myself and we can both go back to the apartment and I'll take both you and Faith to school. At around 11 a.m., Karina and Marisol arrived at the apartment complex. They both noticed that Faith's car was still there, so they assumed that maybe she had overslept and that's why she wasn't picking up the phone. Both Karina and Marisol walked into the apartment together. They started calling out Faith's name, but got no response. Then they went into the bedroom, and that is when they discovered an absolutely horrific scene. Faith was found deceased lying face up, halfway off of the bed, and she was partially nude. All she was wearing was a t-shirt that had been pulled up over her head, and she was partially wrapped up in a quilt. There was a pool of blood below her, and in fact, there was blood everywhere. On the center of the bed, there was also a small white paper bag with the words, quote, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous, end quote. At this point, 911 was called. Chapel Hill authorities were called to the scene. An autopsy was later done, and it was revealed that Faith had died from blunt force trauma to the head, and that the likely murder weapon was an empty bottle of Bacardi peach rum that was found next to her body. Faith had experienced multiple blows to the head, to the point where her skull was fractured, there was one strike in the middle of her forehead and multiple strikes to the side of her head near her ear. So clearly this was a vicious, vicious murder. And because of how her body was found, we can presume that Faith was on or near the bed when that first strike hit. And she probably didn't expect it. It probably came as a surprise. Semen from an unknown male was also found at the scene. Apparently, this unknown male's DNA was also found elsewhere in the apartment. There was also a bloody tampon next to Faith's body. Chapel Hill police began their investigation into this case, and the first obvious person of interest in this case was Eric, Karina's ex-boyfriend. This was for a few reasons. First of all, Eric had a history of breaking into this exact same apartment just two months earlier, so much so that Karina had to change the locks and get an order of protection. Eric had also allegedly threatened to kill Faith just a few months earlier for keeping him from being with Karina. Eric also lived in the same apartment complex as Faith and Karina at that time, just a few buildings down. And as if that wasn't enough to draw suspicion to Eric, authorities discovered that the night before Faith was killed, Eric had texted a friend asking for, quote, forgiveness for what I'm about to do, end quote, and then also sent the same message to another friend via Twitter. Three days after Faith's murder, he also changed his picture on Facebook to a banner that read, quote, Dear Lord, Forgive me for all of my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead. End quote. So, obviously, this is very suspicious behavior from Eric. At this point, authorities were convinced that Eric had to have something to do with this crime. However, police did question Eric and also collected his DNA, and determined that it did not match the unknown DNA found at the scene. The police were now back at square one. They then collected Brandon's DNA. Remember, Brandon was Karina's ex who both girls were trying to contact around the same time of Faith's death. But Brandon's DNA wasn't a match either. They also took the DNA of some of the men who were at the club at the same time as Faith including the man who she was seen walking out with. Allegedly, that man, who Faith was seen walking out with, had initially refused to give a DNA sample. According to him, this was because he was worried that he had touched her that night, so his DNA might be on her. However, I believe that he did eventually comply, and his DNA was also not a match. Next, police looked at Ty as a suspect, given that he was dating Faith at this time and he was also the last person that she texted that night. There were also reports from some of Faith's friends that Ty had at one point in their relationship been very controlling, that he had to know where Faith was at all times and that if Faith didn't respond to him within a certain amount of time, he would come looking for her. So, based on this, Ty is looking quite suspicious. However, he did have an alibi for the night of Faith's death. According to the Breaking Homicide episode on this case, Ty said that he was with another girl all night the night that Faith was murdered. His DNA also did not match the crime scene, so he was also ruled out. So we talked earlier about how Faith may have met up with someone while she was at the library that night with Karina. And Crime Weekly podcast, which has done a really, really deep dive into this case, did confirm that Faith did in fact meet up with someone. They didn't mention the nature of that meetup, but they did say that the individual was questioned by police and cleared. So by this point, Many of the men in Faith's life had been questioned and had had their DNA collected. I do want to point out, though, that just because the DNA of these men didn't match the DNA at the crime scene doesn't mean that they were absolutely not involved with this crime. So let's talk about this DNA that was found. It has not been confirmed by police exactly what type of DNA was found at the crime scene, But this DNA was used to create a genetic phenotype of the killer. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this, there is basically technology that is able to generate an image of what a person might look like just based on their DNA profile. And we will have this image of this suspected individual up on our Instagram so that you can take a look but this genetic phenotype says that the suspect whose DNA was found was very strongly Native American and European mixed ancestry or Latino. Most of his genetic markers pointed to Mexican, Colombian, and Iberian ancestry, and they believe with over 80% confidence that this suspect would have a skin tone in the olive range with very few to no freckles and black hair. So, it has been heavily reported by the media that there was semen found at the crime scene, but to my knowledge, this has not been confirmed by law enforcement. It is also often reported that Faith was sexually assaulted, but again, this has never been confirmed and the autopsy did state that there were no signs of sexual assault. Now, just because there aren't physical signs of sexual assault on an autopsy does not necessarily mean that a sexual assault didn't take place. It just means that there were no signs of trauma found on examination. Reportedly, this male individual's DNA was also found elsewhere in the apartment. In fact, police were able to identify the pen that they believe was used to write the note found at the scene. And they found this individual's DNA on that pen. This would indicate that this suspect may have been the one to write that note. Now, I do want to point out that there is no way for us to know how long this DNA had been there. We don't know whether this unknown male was in the apartment that night when Faith was killed or if he was there earlier that week, earlier that month even. And I think Stephanie Harlow from Crime Weekly Podcast said it best. This DNA either has everything to do with this case or it has nothing to do with this case. There's only two options here. Either that DNA belongs to a man who was in the apartment that night and who either killed Faith or at least was a witness to Faith's murder. Or that DNA was from another encounter that Faith had either earlier that day, the day before, a week before, whatever. And this unknown male has absolutely nothing to do with this murder. The catch with that is, though why hasn't this person come forward? If he is in fact innocent, then you would think that he would come forward and want to clear his name. Although if you're being looked at as the prime suspect in a murder, then maybe you wouldn't come forward. And Crime Weekly also makes another good point, which is that Say Chapel Hill Police knows or has a good idea of who committed this crime. They cannot move forward with prosecuting that person until they find out who this unknown DNA belongs to. Because otherwise, any defense attorney worth their weight in salt is going to bring up that DNA and say, how do you know that this DNA doesn't belong to the actual killer? So either this DNA has everything or nothing to do with this case, But either way, they have to find the owner or they cannot move forward with this case. And I actually think it's quite likely that Chapel Hill police does in fact know or have a good idea of who committed this crime, but this DNA is what is holding them back. Now, the authorities in this case have been, and continue to be, extremely tight-lipped about the details of this case, to the point where details were not even released to the family until two years after Faith's death. In fact, and This is something I had never heard about before this case, but the police apparently had to obtain a court record to keep all of the records in this case sealed. And they had to continuously go to court to have that order renewed so that they could continue to keep the information in this case sealed. I think that points to the fact that the Chapel Hill Police Department really wanted to keep this case under wraps, and I think that makes sense because when you're in the middle of an investigation, there are a lot of details that you don't necessarily want released prematurely to the public, especially given how much public interest there was about this case from the get-go. However, about two years after the crime, there was so much pressure on the police department to release information that they did finally release, not all, but some of the information in this case. So now that we have laid out the general timeline of the crime and the investigation that followed, let's now go back and look at some of the evidence and also talk about theories. And I wanna make this clear. When talking about potential theories and suspects, none of these people have ever actually been named suspects or people of interest by the Chapel Hill police, so this is all simply speculation. First, let's talk about the 911 call that was made by Karina when she and Marisol went to the apartment and found the body. I'm going to play that for you now.
1: Eleven oh one am 44, 44 seconds, september 7 2000, 2012 Ndara 911, where is your emergency?
2: I um, I just walked into my apartment and my friend is just like, I'm unconscious
1: Okay, what's your address, ma'am?
2: I live at Hawking at the view um, give
1: me give me the address.
2: I just I just moved here, I'm about to get it. Oh my god. It's um five six thirty nine Old Chapel Hill Road in Durham.
1: Okay, repeat it to it? me so repeat it to me so I make sure I've got it correct. Okay.
2: Five six three nine Old Chapel
1: Hill Road. It's
2: apartment sixteen oh two. Sixteen oh two. Yes. Okay.
1: What's the phone number you're calling from? Two zero one
2: three two one eight zero seven five.
1: Okay. You say your friend is unconscious. <laughs> He's
2: unconscious. I just walked in the apartment and there looks like there's blood okay, everywhere.
1: Okay, listen to. Me. Okay, listen to me. Listen to me. Somebody's already sending yes. an ambulance. Okay, I need to get some information from you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna tell you how to help her. Okay. Okay.
2: Okay. I how how old is
1: your How old is she?
2: She's nineteen. Okay. I don't know. I don't okay. want to touch her,
1: but. Listen to me. Is is she breathing? I don't
2: know. You
1: need to check and see. Is she breathing?
2: Okay. I don't think so. I don't think so.
1: Okay, listen to me.
2: There's blood everywhere. There's what? There's blood everywhere.
1: Okay. I don't know
2: what happened.
1: Okay, is she on her back or is she on her laying on her stomach? She's on, she's
2: on her back, but like he, I think she fell off the bed
1: Me, all right someone coming? yes i've got somebody coming i've got somebody coming i need for you to help her i need for you to go up to her we need to see if she's breathing or not okay okay
2: listen to me
1: go up the paramedics are on their way i want you to stay on the line i'm going to tell you what to do next all right are you right by her now Yes. Okay. Listen She's carefully.
2: Not moving. Listen. She's not moving. Okay. No. Can, will
1: you touch her arm? Tell me. Does she, how does she
2: feel? She's not
1: moving. Okay, ma'am. We need to find out if we can help her or not. You've got to, you know, do as I'm asking so we can help her. All right. Okay. Okay. If you can. Lay her flat on her back. Rem- remove any pillows.
2: Lay her flat on her back?
1: Flat on her back. Remove any pillows. Okay. Okay. Kneel next to her. Look in her mouth for food or vomit. Okay. Kneel next to her. Look in her mouth for food or vomit. Tell
2: me something. Listen
1: to me. Listen to What is your name?
2: up. I'm really It's okay, honey. It's okay it honey. Listen everywhere. to me. I don't know okay, all
1: right, all right, all right. Listen to me. When you touch her, how does she feel? Does she feel warm?
2: No, she
1: feels cold. She feels
2: cold?
1: Okay. Okay, all right. Don't touch anything else, okay? Don't touch anything
2: else.
1: Okay, they're on their way. I've got police on the way to you, and I've got a got medic on the way.
2: Okay. I can't believe this. Okay. What
1: room is she in?
2: She's in my bedroom.
1: Okay, I want you to go back into the living room, okay? You I need don't to go know in... what's
2: going on. Like, okay, there's
1: listen, there's listen to in me. in my
2: room that, like, was not here before.
1: Okay, listen like to me. It someone that
2: came in here.
1: Okay, okay. It really
2: does.
1: All right, it what What did like you say your name was again? Okay, I don't... Okay, I don't okay, listen to me. Don't touch anything else in the room. I'm not I want touching. you to leave Leave that room. Go into the living room.
2: You I need did. to make
1: sure Make sure the door is unlocked so somebody can get in, so that the medics and the police can get in when they get there. Okay? Yes,
2: okay. It's
1: unlocked. Okay, now yeah, tell me
2: we're
1: again. Get here, though. Okay, they're on their way, honey. They're coming as fast yeah. as they can. You just stay on the phone with me, all right?
2: I yeah. am.
1: Okay, tell me again what your name is.
2: It looks like someone has been in there because you okay. not like the sound Okay, okay.
1: Completed. I've let them know. We've got everybody on the way to help you. Now tell me again what your name is. What? What is your name?
2: Karina Rosario. Karina?
1: Yes. Okay, Karina. You just yes. you sit down on the couch and don't touch anything, okay? You just sit down. I'm not touching
2: anything. Okay.
1: Okay. I just want you to sit down because the the police and the medics are going to be there. Just They're coming just okay. as fast as they can, all right?
2: Okay.
1: You just you just stay on the phone with me. Okay. okay. You just stay on the phone with me.
2: Are you sure they're coming? Yes, ma'am.
1: They are on their way. I just
2: can't believe this. No, someone no okay. had to have been in there.
1: Okay. We've got we've got first responders on the way. There's fire truck coming. There's a medic coming, and the sheriff's department's on the way to you. Okay. okay. You just stay on the phone with me until somebody gets there with you. All right?
2: Okay. Okay, Karina. How
1: old are you, Karina?
2: I'm 20.
1: You're 20. Okay, hon. You're doing all right. You're doing all right. You just stay on the I phone with the me. see
2: the police.
1: You see the police? Yes. Okay. You let me know when they get in there with you, and then you can talk to them, all right? Okay. I just don't want you to be alone right now. Okay. Okay? You just stay on the phone with me. Okay. Are they in there with you? Are they coming in? Yes.
2: Thank you.
1: Okay, honey. All right. Bye-bye.
0: So, a lot has been said about this 911 call. And we could sit here and speculate and analyze this 911 call until we turn blue in the face. And people have done this. There are definitely podcasts and YouTube videos out there that spend a lot of time dissecting this 911 call. And when it comes to theories that circulate on the internet, By far the most popular theory is that Karina killed Faith, or at least had something to do with her murder. And I think out of all of the evidence in this case, this 911 call is one of the biggest aspects that people point to when they are trying to make the argument that Karina was responsible. And there are a few things that they point out when talking about this 911 call. First of all, Karina sounds upset in this call, but she doesn't necessarily sound panicked. She starts off the call with, hi, um, I just walked into my apartment and I think my friend is unconscious. And she continues to say throughout the call that she thinks Faith is unconscious. Now, this crime was allegedly a bloodbath. There was blood everywhere. And People who have seen the crime scene photos have said that it is clear from the scene that Faith had been murdered and that she was unfortunately no longer alive. So why does Karina keep mentioning that Faith is just unconscious? People also point to the fact that Karina doesn't mention Faith by name or mention that Faith lived there with her. She says, my bedroom, my apartment, rather than our apartment. And I don't read too much into this because Faith was only living there temporarily. Karina also can't remember her address off the top of her head. She says the name of the apartment complex, Hawthorne at the View, but when asked for the specific address, she says, I haven't lived here that long, let me get it. People say this is weird or suspicious. I don't know if I agree with that. She had been living here since that spring, I believe, which... I agree is long enough where you should have learned your address by then but maybe she was in such shock that she couldn't remember her address off the top of her head. I don't think that her not knowing her address immediately is necessarily a sign of malicious intent because she does give the name of the complex and it only takes her a second, really, to get the actual address. People also point out that even though both Karina and Marisol allege that they walked into the apartment and found Faith together, we don't hear Marisol in the background of the call at all. Correct me if I'm wrong or if anyone has like really good audio quality of this 911 call and can hear Marisol, but I can't hear anyone in the background at all. And Karina doesn't mention Marisol being there either. She just says, I walked into my apartment or I just walked in and found face not we. And I agree with people when they say that this is weird, that we don't hear Marisol crying or screaming or even saying anything in the background. Maybe Marisol was so upset that she had to leave the apartment and wait outside, but I do agree that this is a little strange. Probably the thing that people have analyzed the most about this call though is that Karina does repeat a few things over and over again. She mentions how it seems like someone had been in the apartment. She says that there are things in her bedroom that hadn't been there before. As far as I know, there wasn't anything recovered at the crime scene that didn't belong to either Faith or Karina, but it is possible that she's referring to the note that was left on top of the bed, and in fact, I think that that is probably what she is referring to. She also says, I don't know what happened, repeatedly. People point to this as an indication that Karina is trying to frame the narrative, that she is trying to paint a picture of her having just walked in and come across this terrible scene. Personally, I don't think it's that weird that she keeps saying, I don't know what happened. I think she was probably in shock. And if she is, in fact, innocent, then she likely didn't have any idea what was going on. So, overall, I don't think this 911 call is the smoking gun that people make it out to be. I do agree that there are a few things that are a little strange or a little off, but I don't think that you can listen to this call and say point blank Karina was being deceptive or Karina wasn't upset and was just pretending. And I have heard a lot of podcasts say time and time again that you can't predict how someone will react to an event like this, something so traumatic and so devastating. And yet they say that and then they continue to analyze someone's very reaction to something like this. So I think we should live by our words and not take too much stock into how a person reacts to finding their friend deceased in their room. So, we're going to come back to the possibility of Karina as a suspect, but I want to keep going and talk next about the note. On the center of the bed, there was a small white paper bag with the words, "I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous," scribbled in ink. And again, this picture will be on our Instagram at Crime on My Mind Pod. So, this was a paper bag from a local restaurant in Chapel Hill called Takeout, which is a really popular takeout place amongst college students at Chapel Hill. And I believe that police did confirm that Faith had been there shortly before her death. And the reason people think that this note was left after the crime had been committed is because there was pretty much blood everywhere else in the bedroom except on this note. On the Breaking Homicide episode, there was a handwriting expert who came in and analyzed this note and determined that it was written with someone's non-dominant hand, probably in order to disguise their handwriting, and that the writer was experiencing a roller coaster of emotions while writing this note. This expert also said that they believe it is a female who wrote this note due to words such as bitch and jealous. Now, I am no handwriting expert, but I personally don't think you can make the assumption that this is a female writing this just based on the words bitch and jealous. Jealous, I think, yes, is more of a word that females tend to use with other females But even then, I can still see a man potentially using that word when referring to a female. I do agree that this note was written by someone who was so enraged that even after they had killed Faith, their rage was still bubbling to the point that killing her wasn't enough. They also had to leave this note. And I do think that the word stupid is kind of the focal point in this note. Maybe Faith called this person stupid and that set them off. Maybe this person just thought that Faith thought that they were stupid. And it kind of seems like bitch and jealous were written as an afterthought. It is possible that this note wasn't intended for Faith at all. I mean, if she was in fact dead when this note was written, then who was it written for? maybe it was intended for Karina to see when she got home and found Faith's body. And if that is the case, I think it changes the motive for leaving this note behind and also possibly for this murder drastically. Another point to keep in mind, and this is assuming that this note was in fact written after Faith's death, is that whoever wrote this note felt like they had enough time after killing her to write this. If this was an intruder who came in and assaulted and killed Faith, they don't necessarily know that someone won't walk in at any point and catch them. Now, it is true that this murder happened very early in the morning. Uh, Possibly the murderer assumed that no one was likely going to stop by at four o'clock in the morning. But I think it does speak to the murderer's state of mind after the fact. They were so enraged that they felt that writing this note was more important than getting out of there ASAP. Now let's move on to the mysterious voicemail that is often discussed when talking about this case. After Faith's murder, a friend of hers came forward and told authorities that she had received a voicemail from Faith the night of her death, and she believes that this voicemail was a pocket dial. So this call was made from Faith's phone at around 1.30am, so while her and Karina were still at the nightclub. And you really cannot make out anything from this voicemail if you listen to it. You can hear a few different voices and a lot of really loud noises, uh, maybe some music and some rapping, but it really isn't audible to the naked ear. However, A forensic audio expert did analyze the voicemail and enhance it, and he has his own theory about what was being said during this voicemail. This audio expert says that during the call, you can hear two female voices, one of them being Faith's, and at least two male voices as well. According to his transcription of this voicemail, you can hear a female saying, you want to mess with my boyfriend? Then Faith says, I said I don't want to Rosie. Now, Rosie was allegedly a nickname for Karina. The female voice then says, I'm gonna kick your face, bitch. Don't ever think I would have believed you. Faith then screams, ow, and help me. A male voice is also heard saying, I think she's dying and I can't believe you did it, Rosie. This expert also says that he can hear the name Eric clearly in this tape. Now, I will be perfectly honest. I cannot hear any of the things that this expert says we are supposed to be hearing on this tape. It sounds completely inaudible to me, even after it has been enhanced. And you can take a listen to it yourself. I believe there is a clip of this voicemail on True Crime Daily's episode about this case on YouTube, um, and also on the Breaking Homicide episode that I mentioned. So, I would love to hear what you guys think, because I honestly don't know what to make of this voicemail. The only part that I can kind of hear is someone saying, ow, and maybe help me. But other than that, I absolutely can't hear anything from this voicemail. At least not anything that is comprehensible. The forensic audio expert who looked into this recording has stated that he believes that this is audio of Faith being murdered. Now, a few things that are important to note. Like I said, this voicemail was from 1.30 a.m. that night, and based on that, we know that the girls were still in the nightclub at that time. So the likelihood that there was some sort of physical altercation going on during this let alone a murder is low because the club was packed that night and someone would have seen something. Also, we have the video footage of Karina and Faith leaving the nightclub around half an hour later looking very much alive and well. The audio expert does say that he thinks that the timestamp on the voicemail is wrong and that this voicemail was actually from much later in the night after the girls had already left the club. You can hear music or what sounds like someone trying to rap a T-Pain song at one point in the background, but he alleges that this is not actually T-Pain's song being played in a club, but instead someone trying to rap the song in order to cover up Faith's screams. This audio was played for Faith's father and he does believe that this is his daughter's voice and that this is the moment that she was attacked and killed. Now, Chapel Hill Police Department, who have Faith's phone, have disputed this and stated that the timestamp on the voicemail is correct. And I tend to believe them because they are the ones who have Faith's phone and who presumably have been able to get in contact with her phone servicer, which would have the correct information about when the call was made. The FBI also tried to analyze the voicemail and were not able to make out any conversation. Now, is it possible that this voicemail does capture some sort of an argument between Faith and someone else, possibly Karina? Yes, I think it's possible. But I really can't definitively come to that conclusion just based on what I'm hearing on this tape, which really isn't much at all. I also think that if they had an argument that night, someone from the club would have come forward and said that they witnessed such an argument. Like I said, the club was packed and Faith and Karina were with other friends of theirs. I just don't think that you can say that this recording captured the moment when Faith was attacked, but that is just my opinion. So I was hoping to be able to do this story in one episode, but it's seeming like that won't be possible. I promise one day I will do a case that is just a one-parter, but Faith's story definitely deserves more than that. So we will be back next week with the second and final part of this story. Until then, Definitely check out our Instagram at crimeonmymindpod for the photo of the suspect in this case, as well as a photo of the note that was found. Also, feel free to email us case suggestions and any feedback at crimeonmymindpodcast at gmail.com. Also, thank you to everyone who has left us ratings on Apple Podcasts. Please keep the five-star ratings coming and also leave us a review if you can. It seriously means so much to know that people are out there listening to these stories and engaging in these cases. So we will be back next week with another episode finishing up our story on Faith Hedgepath. If you have any information about this case please contact the Chapel Hill Police Department at 919-614-6363 or the Chapel Hill Crime Stoppers at 919-942-7515. Until next time, you're listening to Crime on My Mind. Sources for this episode include Breaking Homicides episode Who Killed Faith, Crime Weekly Podcast, The Murder Squad Podcast, True Crime Daily on YouTube, and Danelle Hallen on YouTube.